Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Elena Sevastianova to the show. Elena has over 15 years of professional experience in the energy and infrastructure sectors. Prior to Ember, Elena served as a principal with Global Infrastructure Partners CAPS team, focusing on renewable energy opportunities. Elena, how are you doing today? Very good. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Elena, I'd like to start off with something interesting about the guest that most people wouldn't know. So if you wouldn't mind sharing something with the audience, I'd really appreciate it. Uh, sure. Uh, well, I uh, run a private equity platform called uh, Ember Infrastructure Partners. Uh, before that, I was part of a much larger uh, private equity platform. And before that, I spent uh, close to 15 exciting years doing investment banking. So as a uh, a standard and non-standard of a career path that got me to where I am today. So tell me about the non-standard. Uh, well, the non-standard was probably the beginning. And uh, my parents were at the edges of their seats when I was undergraduate studying philosophy. So they definitely thought that there's not going to be a path for employment after uh, that um, experience in college, to say the least. And then I ended up going and joining uh, oil and gas practice, uh, focusing on M&A at J.P. Morgan. So I think there was definitely a sign of relief on the parent side. Um, and that's where probably the more traditional path started uh, for my career. I stayed with investment banking for an extended period of time, I mean, as close to 15 years. And from there, switch from oil and gas to conventional power to then doing renewables. And then uh, reality is, is through that very traditional path, I ended coming to a realization that uh, switching and, and really refocusing away from conventional core practices within real assets was the right time and the right non-conventional path. So uh, that's where... I left my predecessor firm alongside with a few colleagues to launch an Amber that focuses on sustainability-driven, resource-efficient opportunities in uh, real asset space. And that is, unfortunately today, is as non-conventional as it comes. <laughs> so I'm a liberal arts guy myself, but I have to ask, how do you go from uh, philosophy to uh, oil and gas? Uh, that was a difficult one to explain to anybody, but I was actually lucky that I went to a liberal arts school that, uh, did track, uh, whether or not, uh, the students, uh, were considering careers post, uh, four years of liberal arts school. And so they approached me and asked me, so what my aspirations were for a career and truth be told, and in a very, um, uh, manner, you know, consistent with being a philosophy degree major, I still was contemplating, but didn't come to any clear conclusion of what I wanted to do. And so they threw at me a suggestion of joining our law firm, which in their mind was a very clear path linking philosophy to uh, a post-college uh, profession. And that I decided not to go with. And then the next question came out and said, so how's your math? I said, it's a probably fine. And they said, well, why don't you try investment banking? You need logic, you need math. And if you have those two, I think you might be just fine. So I went and uh, with their help, um, they've set up a number of interviews in the city for me uh, and then went and went through the interviewing process and ended up with, at that time it was Chase. And then a year after, uh, through the merger with JP Morgan, it became JP Morgan Chase and uh, ended up in a group uh, focusing on oil and gas. That was Oil and gas is um, probably it was because coming out of Russia, that's the one sector that I thought would be uh, of interest uh, to explore. And without having any other uh, bases in any of the sectors, I just applied for 
a position within oil and gas group and ended up uh, joining them. So I have to dig deeper again in the philosophy piece. Um, how do you how do you think that background has helped you throughout your career? Uh, it actually, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you, because after I joined JP Morgan and I was a Credit Suisse for a period of time, uh, it, whether or not it helped or not, I don't know, but it definitely uh, made me more open to considering um, different options and different paths forward, whether or not it's with the deals with clients. It definitely helped uh, with a lot of conversations because you weren't only focused on a transaction at hand, which was the most important um, thing probably on the table at most times, but to build conversations, really built relationships with people. That background, uh, I think liberal art background definitely helped out. Uh, it also helped me uh, recruit people over time um, and really not bog down in terms of what their specific immediate backgrounds were as opposed to um, thinking who might be the right fit for a particular opportunity. And that's where I was more open to go with and non-traditional backgrounds for finance, um, whereas a lot of people were really focused on getting just finance uh, backgrounds to fill some of the spots. It really, I don't again, I mean, it might be uh, beneficial, not beneficial. For me, I definitely found it uh, as a much broader, uh, greater base. Um, and then I've learned everything else I needed to learn on the job. And, and I was lucky enough to have people side by side with me every step of the way that were willing to spend time and teach me the hands-on uh, tools uh, required for all the jobs that I had. Uh, and then I still got the benefit of spending four years and studying philosophy in return. So it worked out well. So if I'm hearing you correctly, um, I think I'm hearing that the philosophy background helped you strengthen the EQ muscle. Mm -hmm. Would that be correct? Yeah. That the ability to deal with people, like you said, across the table during an M&A, times that could be potentially tense or have tension or anxiety, and you are better able to help with the human factor. Is that correct? I don't know if I'm better, but it definitely helped, you know, find different uh, grounds with people and, and across the discussions. You know, it just really, I think having a broader experience, whether or not it's educational or professional, is definitely always helpful. Um, and again, that's why for me, it was easier to establish some of the conversations just outside of even the immediate deals, transactions, or um, opportunities that we're looking at, just because we could go back and have a conversation outside of looking at oil and gas field or looking at power plant. And it's definitely was helpful from that perspective. So you mentioned starting up in oil and gas and now, you know, the majority of investments that you're doing are in the renewable and sustainable sectors. Mm -hmm. How have you seen this landscape change over the time that you've been involved in it? You know, when I think about uh, infrastructure in general, most people will qualify the asset class as probably the slowest moving. Um, and in part, uh, they're right, because a lot of the assets that fall under the understanding of infrastructure have not changed uh, in a very long time and are not going to change anytime soon. However, being sustainability focused and watching uh, new technologies and new assets come into the fore has definitely been part of uh, the most recent experience. You know, when I started um, probably not that long within the past decade of focusing on some of the renewables in the U.S., Solar, for example, was not an asset class that was considered infrastructure or core energy by any stretch of imagination. Most people did not want to touch solar uh, because it was such an early stage subsector um, that was taking root in the U.S. And so we had to learn uh, and look at the experience of 
this sector elsewhere, specifically in Europe, to really uh, learn how to analyze it, to learn how to extend um, money against it, whether or not it's a credit or in the equity side. And uh, and now this asset class is as much part of the um, probably the the canvas of the core energy infrastructure asset as anyone out there. But it's the you know data centers follow the same sort of path again. That's uh, in but for sustainability, the rest of the asset classes are still relatively slow to take root, which is why we ultimately decided to do uh, what we are doing at Ember of really forming a platform around finding some of the proven technologies, but they're not mainstream yet, and and help. Uh, bring those team to scale up and really build platforms around them so that they can mimic, maybe not to the same extent as solar was over the past 10 years, but mimic that growth and de-risking of additional asset classes that are infrastructure by characteristic, but are definitely far from mainstream as of today. So staying with the theme of canvas and solar taking its place on that canvas, coloring the canvas, if you will, mm-hmm. um, what technologies are you excited about you think that will be adding additional color to that canvas? Oof. That's, you see, this is where uh, I can, um, I have to be pulled away sometimes, especially during uh, some of the networking cocktail hours when I get into subject matter of what we can do with waste and how we can do better, where my husband has to pull me away that I stop talking about waste. Um, there's a lot of people, um, generally when they think about sustainability, and I've seen this a lot recently, if you start talking about sustainability to them, the immediate reaction that comes in and saying, oh, you are a VC focus, or you are looking for breakthrough technologies. And the reality is we're not, you know, we're really looking for mature technologies and there are plenty of them out there. It's just, they're not. Uh, really front and center of a lot of firms or companies or um, a general population out there. And I would say the ones that are most interesting to us are the ones that uh, we've seen being de-risked over a recent period of time, such as taking waste to energy processes or even wastewater uh, and and really um, putting them into practice to scale up. I mean, in uh, most states, well, in all states, I think if, if really focusing the U.S. for a second. I mean, waste has been and becoming a tremendous, uh, not just a headache, but a real problem of how to treat different waste streams, whether or not they're bio or not. Uh, And yet there are a lot of uh, technologies out there that have been proven and commercialized that can work to scale and really uh, help solve some of the issues that come with the simplistically volume of waste that we're staring at on a daily basis. Now, It comes with finding the right teams that can also get behind those technology and really develop successful projects. Because the other thing that uh, a lot of people are well aware of when sustainability comes into play is probably thinking of the first generation ethanol. And I don't know if you remember that back in the days when ethanol was coming to the fore and there was a lot of excitement about the sustainability aspect of that. The unfortunate practical aspect of it came out is that a lot of teams got in uh, and not many of them survived or were successful, right? And so that's the a challenge. And I think in the double sort of you are thinking about technologies and the right time, the right place to deploy them, yet probably shortage still of good management teams out there that can execute on those strategies. But but for us, I mean, it's really um, waste going into energy and waste going into industrials. 
those are the two most exciting thematics that we probably spend most of the time on. Can you expand on the waste to industrials for a moment? Uh, that's such a, um, a broad spectrum. No, but it, it's actually, um, you know, it's somebody's waste to somebody's treasure. It's really, it truly becomes uh, a very practical um, application for some of those. So, for example, um, things that, let's think about something that a lot of people can relate to and probably deal with on a daily basis is um, compostable packaging, right? So I live in New York City, so our team every day would go out for lunch, and then most of us, depending on our personal preferences or food intakes, uh, come back with a takeout container, right? And in New York specifically, there's been a clear drive when you come back and you see those brownish sort of bowls and containers in people's hands. Uh, chances are uh, they went to a place that prides itself on healthy organic foods and sustainable packaging, et cetera, et cetera. So in their hands, they usually have a takeout container that is compostable. Practically, that means that that container probably traveled a long way from China, where it was uh, produced out of baguettes that was most likely shipped from Thailand, um, and ultimately ended up on the shelves of the U.S.-based food retailers for uh, takeout purposes. Now, if you think about the sources of that potential product in the U.S., um, there's significant opportunities there. You know, sustainable packaging ultimately is not anything new. Uh, there's a lot of feedstock that's been tested, including the gas um, that is available elsewhere outside of Asia. And there are other sources of waste straws that uh, can be upcycled um, to produce sustainable packaging. And so that to us is an example of waste to industrials, where you're taking something that's otherwise either left on the field um, to rot or uh, removed, and that can be processed. And uh, at the end, you have a packaging product, which to us is industrials. Now, most of the people don't think about it as... um, is an infrastructure asset class, but truth be told, you're at the end of the day putting a facility, a longer dated useful life facility. Uh, there are practices that we're currently tracking very closely where packaging companies are interested in securing, obviously, access to uh, some of that uh, packaging that can be produced domestically. So therefore, you're starting to see movement of what that route to market arrangements may look like. And at the end of the day, you are uh, processing what otherwise would be waste into something that has uh, an immediate uh, market demand and a very clear sort of uh, pricing mechanism behind it um, to displace the products that are currently coming mostly from China. Very interesting. Thank you for expanding on that. And, you know, since you're closer to the investment community than I am, how have you seen the appetite towards these kinds of investments change over time? Uh, the appetite is not an issue because for most, um, especially nowadays, you know, the every single time you think about sustainability-driven opportunities, most people will say all the right things. That That is obviously in front of their mind, both from the investor's perspective and obviously companies. And that is important, right? That's a first step where the overall investment community is realizing that in the mix of the overall asset exposures that they have, uh, it's probably prudent to start thinking about bringing um, some of the assets that are a more um, 
carbon sensitive or uh, resource efficient than other assets in their portfolio. Now, the corporates, uh, truth be told, are probably been even more important in that drive than the investment community because uh, corporates at the end of the day uh, will continue being the biggest driver and bigger consumer of some of the output of those products that are sustainability driven. And they also are the important window into the markets where some of those products can take a mainstream form. But the cautionary part of it is that with the amount of the interest and the appetite that resource efficient opportunities bring, again, the the biggest risk is really uh, making sure that some of these technologies are rolled out in a very precise manner as they scale up to platforms, um, that the teams that are behind some of the opportunities, whether or not it's waste processing, wastewater treatment, uh, really um, have the right backgrounds to develop uh, some Mm -hmm. of the projects or to bottleneck their existing operations to become more resource efficient, to continue uh, being very um, coherent and, and sort of a consistent in the way that sustainability practices get rolled out. Because excitement on its own uh, is great, uh, but the worst thing that can happen to that drive is that there's a number of bumps in the road that ultimately leave a bad taste in the mouth of investors and the communities of what the sustainability uh, project uh, result with. So, so far, you know, most of the things that we're looking at, we've seen a tremendous um, range of highly capable teams coming out and really delivering uh, the projects and the technologies that can be cornerstones of really good and solid platforms. So we're happy to see that. Um, and so that couple with the investor appetite overall has been a good match to date. Uh, but again, we're always cautious of making sure of not get overexcited just because it's sustainability driven, but really find the the right mix of teams, products, markets, and technologies. So one of the things I want to explore on this show is to, you know, kind of push that why. Why are you involved in the space? You know, why is it important to you? I understand from a returns perspective, but personally, like, what's the why behind it? Uh, finally, you know, in, in my whole career, you know, I've done um, things that I've always enjoyed professionally, right? So it's always been um, a great honor and, and luck to be honest with you, to be part of the teams that I've been a part of to date, because I've had the benefit of learning from some of the the best minds in the industries that I've been involved with. But personally, it finally clicked together where professional excitement and the drive of doing uh, good transactions and and really bringing uh, successful deals into the market clicked together with the personal interest of doing something that I actually find uh, extremely rewarding. Um, on a personal level, right? So it's always been natural self-curiosity after work of reading up and all the new things that are happening uh, in resource-efficient space, but during the work hours focusing on uh, everything that is purely conventional. And again, there's nothing wrong with it. It was a great experience. But in starting Amber, I think uh, the team and I have really felt that uh, for the first time in a long time, we can bring together the experience we've built over the past 15 years uh, with what's been personally driving and fueling our curiosity of how much better we can make a real asset space if we make it a conscious effort. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you, honestly, the first time it's um, when I come home and I can sometimes tell my kids of 
what kind of uh, products we're looking at. I see that excitement on their faces as well. So it's hard to get a kid excited about an oil and gas well, I'll be honest with you. I've tried several times to explain how a a combined cycle um, facility operates, never had that spark. But um, telling them about uh, waste processing and things that can be made out of things that we see and sort of the cycles of efficiency some of the kids respond more positively. I can't say that they're really uh, ready to skip their dinner, listen to stories about waste processing, but it's definitely, um, you know, it strikes the right chord uh, personally on a number of levels. And that's why I think that's something that uh, members of the team all share and, and coupled with the amount of opportunities that we see in the market the teams that we get to meet, they're, again, driven not just by being professionally successful, but also building something that they think is going to be um, significantly different and more beneficial in the future, uh, makes the job and the personal sort of uh, balance in a very unique way for the first time. So are your kids uh, fluent in waste to value also? Oh, I hope so, because now, you know, we have different, you know, uh, I think my oldest one has banned a number of things from the house on her own after listening. Um, There's actually, by the way, examples, we can't, um, it's all we can use single use plastic. Um, She's actually gotten as far as even try to ban the grandparents from using it in their houses. So that's still work in progress because uh, certain habits die very uh, hard. Um, we have to recycle. Um, so the middle kid is responsible for all of the recycling. Uh, we, you know, water, we have now a filter. I mean, it's all, it starts with little things. Um, the little one, uh, his most fun thing is to turn off all the lights and make sure there is, um, uh, they conserve as much as they can. Um, but uh, it's been it's been kind of fun to watch it and, and for them to actually take ownership of certain things that they think is in the con- con, you know, sort of a conserving vein. I mean, some of them are uh, very child age appropriate, but still pretty refreshing. So uh, we'll see. And then um, they want, obviously, which I've still have not executed on yet to for uh, me to come in and start talking in their schools about how the schools can do better. And, uh, and, uh, Uh, sort of waste recycling, I think that's a bigger problem to tackle. I don't think I want to be on that side of a school yet, but eventually I think they'll convince me to go in and start pitching to the principals and and the schools of how they can do things better. But I actually pleased to say that in New York, I think a lot of schools are on that bandwagon as well. So I don't think there's uh, much that I would need to pitch them on to change their ways on a daily basis. so. So are they fans of Greta Thunberg? Uh, they actually, my, uh, is interesting because last week I was flying back and unfortunately I missed the, um, the climate March that was in New York, but uh, the kids are very much, it, it's fascinating to see how different it is for, uh, for their generation, our generation or any other generations, but they're well aware of, of, um, all of the points and a lot of, uh, you know, obviously Greta being on the face for the kids of, of fighting for, and standing up for the climate change, um, they're extremely well aware uh, of of everything that she stands for, to the extent that even in the schools, I think, in New York City, um, they specifically told the parents that if they wanted to take the kids and participate in the march, that's going to be an excuse absence. As I said, unfortunately, I was traveling back to the city, so my kids didn't get to do that. But um, 
but it is very refreshing to see that how much in tune they are with the um, the ideas and the key sort of deliverables that Greta and others uh, that support her and her fight against the climate change are um, coming to the front. And the kids being a very important voice, right? So, I mean, again, my, my kids fight that fight with uh, their grandparents of how they can be more resource efficient. And, uh, and it's only just the beginning. So I'm definitely excited to see how uh, they'll continue down that path and, and watching people like Greta is nothing um, short of just uh, phenomenal and having, you know, I wish some of the adults had that strength and perseverance that the kids have these days. You know, I so agree. My, my oldest daughter, who's 11, um, part of her Girl Scouts earlier this year, they did a plastic bag um, drive where they went outside grocery stores and essentially collected plastic bags and then, you know, put them through recycling and uh, gave people these reusable bags. And to your point, you know, they're teaching us. And I also think, personally speaking, I'm more aware of, you know, what we're doing in the house just because of the kids. So I can totally understand that. They put us in our guard for a good reason. I'm always, you know, it's, uh, I welcome that, you know, they obviously have, it's, it's a fine balance of always teaching them the backgrounds of what goes into it, certain considerations and the balances that come with it. But, uh, but their drive is, is something that I get excited about. And I hope that they continue down the path and the schools do a good job of, of weaving in into the overall curriculum um, as they go through and they study um, the sort of the environment and the surrounding circumstances. But, uh, but it's definitely been something that, three kids and my youngest one only being five uh is definitely are becoming more and more aware which is a great thing for me personally to see well absolutely you know you're, you're seeding that very very early making that impression so you know when when it uh is he, is he a boy five-year-old yeah so you know by the time he's 10 11 12 who knows you know where we'll be as far as this movement is going and he might be one of the early leaders so <laughs> We'll see. He'll need to uh, have a lot of self-control before he gets there. Right now, he's just very <laughs> obsessed with turning the lights off everywhere. So, <laughs> Well, like you said, every little bit helps. <laughs> well, I want to be respectful of your time. So one last question I have is that if there's one piece of advice you'd like to share with the audience, what would it be? Uh, one piece of advice, and this is from where a lot of people have been coming out and questioning sort of the decision to leave a well-established firm and starting something on our own from scratch, um, with all of the cautions that I think I've gotten uh, before leaving the firm or before even starting Amber, um, one thing I would say for certain, if uh, you believe in something, uh, then you just got to go out there and do that because I can tell you categorically that the past 12 months um, have been probably the most rewarding time professionally and personally for me because we really truly got around the table, built a tremendous team, um, doing something that we believe in, um, not only personally, but professionally that we can execute on successfully. And, uh, and this is by far the most challenging thing I've ever done, but it's definitely been also the most rewarding. Um, no, not to say you just got to throw stuff in the wall to see if it sticks, but you have a good plan um you really you know and as scary as it may be going for it um would be something that you'd never have to regret doing so go for it but have a plan in hand correct 
Yes. Yeah. You know, I'm a, I'm a real asset investor. No, you can't <laughs> expect anything less from an infrastructure person. So you really take that leap, but have all the best of the bells and whistles stuck in all of your little pockets, you know, so that you're ready for everything that may come. But, um, but taking that leap is, uh, it really is something that I will never regret. Um, something that every day when I get up, I get driven by getting to the point we are to the next step and just continue building on the platform that we started on together. So, Well, Elena, thank you again so much for your time today and for being a guest on Bigger Than Us. And I look forward to catching up with you in the future. Sounds good. And thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too.